Hello, you're listening to History Out Loud, Chat from the Stacks, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries, presented by Jill Carpenter. Welcome back to History Out Loud um, for the latest episode, and today we're going to be talking about rush bearing, and my guest today is Gary Stringfellow and he was one of the founder members of the revival of Sorby Bridge, Rush Bearing. And he's also written a book called Rush Bearing and Rush Strewing in Churches Across the Northern Counties, which I have a copy of here and I've read, and it's really interesting. Oh, thank you. (laughs) It was interesting for me to do it. There aren't many published, very few, I think 130 or so. It's a very niche subject. I didn't publish it to make money. I published it because I could. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, it was just a, it was just something I could do. So that was it. I should have said welcome, Gary, by the way, then. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to History Out Loud. Um, so uh, just first of all, Gary, I mean, how did you become interested in rush bearing? Well, um, as a, a child of the 1940s, I was in my late teens at a time when the folk revival in England was at its height. Uh, And so therefore, being interested in folk music and folk customs, I just took an interest in all forms of traditional uh, pastimes. um, And it developed from there. When did you start researching more in depth with regards to the traditions and the history of it? Yeah, I, I started really uh, an in-depth research about eight or nine years ago, uh, and once once I started, I, I couldn't stop. It just continued, I, and I eventually I felt I have to try and find every possible reference to brush bearing uh, across the northern counties. Um, I probably haven't got all the references, but I have to say that uh, since I completed and published the book, uh, there haven't been many more that have been brought to my attention. When, when you look on the library catalogue, it, it is basically your, your book. <laughs> yes. that's, that's the one. <laughs> when did it begin and what actually is rush bearing? The actual origins are a little obscure, but it's been suggested that it goes back to possibly as early as the seventh century. Uh, When Christianity was coming to the country, Pope Gregory uh, at that time told the abbots who were coming across to take over the pagan temples and uh, and convert them into Christian houses, dedicate them to a saint. And when it was the saint's day, they should celebrate it with decorating the church and, and so on. And that event has continued in the Christian church to the present day. Churches celebrate the saints did, and that's generally tends to be called the wake or the wakes. I think originally it was called the wake because people would be awake all the night. They were fast to stay awake overnight the following oh, day. Right. I didn't realize that. That's been suggested. Uh, and so that's quite possibly where it starts. There are Victorian antiquaries who were suggesting that it was um, a leftover from the Druids, which 
these days doesn't get a lot of uh, support. Uh, and I, I, I'm just not convinced. Victorian antiquaries, they tended to um, link everything back to pagan times. Um, right. Just not the case. Yeah. You mentioned somebody called Stephen Glover. Is, is that who you're referring to there? Yes, yes. He was uh, quite a well-known uh, antiquary at the time. Mm. Um, but I think he's got it completely wrong. Yeah. So, so why rushes then? Where do they come into it? Well, uh, rushes have been used as uh, a floor covering for as long as floor covering was ever required. Um, and we have references to rushes being put on the church floors because the church floors were not flagged. There were no wooden church floors. You, you built your building and inside there, you may have had a, a layer of puddled clay that would dried hard or it may have been bare earth. And rather than just have that, they were put a floor covering. And it could have been straw. It would depend on what was growing in the area. There are lots of rushes in the north. And so they were put um, rushes on the floor just through necessity. But perhaps at rush bearing, they would renew with the rushes at that particular time. At the wakes or at the rush bearing, they would renew the rushes. And in the north of England, What's probably known as the wakes, most everywhere else, became known as rush bearing. Although there are still a few places in the north that still had rush carts, as we'll talk about later, yeah. but still called it their wakes and didn't refer to their rush bearing. The two are the same. Hmm. Was there a particular type of rush that, that was used? Uh, yeah, it's um, mostly it's the common rush, which is uh, Junctus suffusus. A hardy rush that grows up on the moors, anything up to a metre in length, uh, and it's it's tapered from six or seven centimetres uh, at the base to up to a sharp point at the other end, and these are cut in large bundles and taken to the church. Right. Or, or the home, if you wanted them in your house. There are some references to some very unpleasant, unsavoury practices in English homes where the rushes were strewed and left to fester, as it was described, uh, for many years. You put a quote in from Erasmus, um, the Dutch yeah. philosopher. Uh, that's quite an, an eye-opener, really. It's, it's almost poetic. Yeah. It describes the, the flaws generally spread with clay and then with rushes from some marsh, which are renewed from time to time, but so as to leave a basic clay sometimes for 20 years, under which fester spittle, vomit, dog's urine, and men's too, dregs of beer, and cast off bits of fish and other unspeakable kinds of fill. So, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't make it sound particularly pleasant. No, and in churches, because they would renew them annually, or even biannually, as, as they were needed. Um, but they, they would make a special effort when the church was having their wakes or their rush bearing, they would make that special effort to clean the church. So when did the term rush bearing first appear in records that you've researched? Well, the, the, the earliest reference I can find is... Um, 1556, that's at Great Harwood in Lancashire. Um, it, it's in the 
uh, church wardens that counts that they were either paying out, I think it's more likely five shillings and tuppence at the rush bearing. Uh, I, I can't see it being a form of income, but I think it, I think it was an expense that they were laying out of fashions and tuppence. And in 1556, that's quite a bit of money. Now, it, it is the earliest reference. It's the earliest written reference I can find. But it, it must have been well established long before that uh, as a custom. Um, and it was obviously well known. I noticed in some of the references in your book that it seemed to be women that were carrying in the, the rushes to churches. Is there a particular reason you think why that was the case traditionally? Well, I, I don't think only women were bringing rushes in. I think what was happening was that men probably brought the bulk of the rushes, but it was women who brought token bunches they would probably take large bundles of rushes tie them up there are records of them tying them up decorating them with flowers and taking them to church you probably have to have a lot of women taking rushes to church in order to cover the whole floor to a decent depth so i would suspect that they decorated the church itself with the bundles of rushes and flowers and the men probably provided the bulk, but there's no references necessarily to the bulk of them until we get to a much later date, and that's when the rush carts start to appear. When was the first record of rush bearing in Calderdale? Uh, well, in Calderdale, the first reference is actually at Hepton store, and incidentally, it is also the first description of rush bearing anywhere. There are references to rush bearing, but if you've no descriptions of what it is, it, it would be meaningless. But at Hepton store, we get uh, a description of young women from Wadsworth bringing bundles of rushes decorated with flowers to the church at Hepton store. Uh, we only know that because of an incident occurred there. Uh, a young man was trying to get into the church and he was pushing his way in. And one of the other parishioners uh, took an objection to this and gave him a clip around the ear. And because of that, and the incident happened on church ground, he was brought before the ecclesiastical court. And in, in the records, to set a context to this incident, it's then when it's described this rush bearing Septon stall when these women brought the rushes, and that's the very earliest description we have of a procession to church um, with the rushes and the church being decorated. So, in a sense, it's come by another route, as it were. <laughs> yeah, many, many of the earliest references to rush bearing are not necessarily because the church wanted it recording. It's because of an incident that went on and that caused it to be recorded in the diocesan accounts uh, where uh, someone had been brought to court. Um, I know just a bit earlier you, you mentioned um, saints days and that's when rush bearing was to take place. But is there a particular 
time of year that was where it was more common for, for rush bearing to occur? Or, or could it go on in different churches throughout the whole year? I've no doubt at various times the, the saints' days would be celebrated. I mean, not all saints' days are in the summer when rush bearing tended to take place. And so perhaps they'd have some other special event. Um, it might have been when the church was uh, initially consecrated or perhaps some other time significant in that particular church but late summer is the time for really for rush bearing because that is when the rushes are at the best they are annual plants well no they're not annual but they the tops of the plants die away in winter and in the rush fields if you visit the rush fields in winter there's virtually no sign of the rushes but by uh, late july august and september that's when the rushes are at the best and so that's when they were bringing them in. Although there are other references outside late summer uh, where rushes were brought into church for other, other reasons. And uh, they would have presumably had to search a bit harder to find the rushes. In, in a sense, it's almost a little bit like harvest. It is indeed, yes. And it, of course, in some places, uh, other parts of the country, um, where, which... In, in a few places, they still do strew the, the floor of church, but it might be hay or straw that they put down. And of course, it isn't called rush bearing there. What do they call it there? Is it wake still? Their wake, wakes, yes. Or their saints day or, or some other yeah, appropriate day, yes. Um, was, was there rush bearing in Halifax itself? It's almost certain that there would have been rush bearing in every church before the Reformation. Yes, I, I really think that there probably was. It's hard to find a church uh, where, where records go back much before the Reformation, uh, but it was definitely common. Of course, all the churches were Roman Catholic then, and uh, it was a common practice in many of them. And it's in the late 16th century then Queen Elizabeth send in uh, Edmund Grindle to become Archbishop of York, mm. and he, he is suppressing rush-bearing across the north of England, uh, along with other customs, um, the reason being that they were associated with the pre-Reformation era, and so therefore they are things to suppress. Yeah, I, I thought that was interesting in your book when you were talking about Queen Elizabeth. Um, that she she tolerated Catholicism up to a point, but then after a number of plots against her and the rising in the north, she she put a foot down. Then somewhat rather hard. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, Edmund Grindle, he he has a quite an interesting quote as well to uh, Sir William Cecil. Where I think it's when he's just been appointed, and um, he, he doesn't speak very. Uh, fondly of, of the people that he's he's come to govern really does he not at all i see in them three evil qualities which are great ignorance much dullness to conceive better instruction and great stiffness to retain their wanted errors so uh, do you think that could have been because he was meeting resistance Oh, of course, yes, he's reading a lot of resistance. And whilst he was, he was trying to suppress it across the north, he did quite well in Yorkshire 
uh, until it gets to pop to the Pennine areas. And in Lancashire, it uh, didn't have the same effect. Roman Catholicism was retained much stronger uh, in the in the Lancashire uh, area. Um, so it wasn't totally successful in wiping everything out. Yeah. Could you say something about the visitation articles and in- injunctions? Yes, well, the visitation articles, the churches would be visited to see what they were doing and see whether the church had been run properly. Uh, injunctions were taken against them if they didn't conform to what was required. Uh, and this is another reason why we, we, we know that rush bearing continued at certain places, because we get instances of um, the locals taking uh, rushes to church or flowers to church uh, when clearly it wasn't to go on. This had been said, you do not do this. You do not decorate the church as you did under the Roman Catholics. Um, And so people were brought to court because they had done that and find just how successful they were in getting the money out of people when they had been fined, I don't know. But this is what happened. Uh, and these, these are very useful records because they actually tell us that rush bearing or the people still wanted rush bearing to go on, even if the church didn't. Yeah. So were there actually laws passed that were, that were saying you cannot do this anymore? The, the ecclesiastical laws, the canon law, governs what's goes on within the church uh, itself, church area. Um, and some of the early references, what you can't do, uh, it says you can't have Morris dancers, you can't have lords and ladies and summer festivities in the curtilage of the church, in the, in the grounds associated with the church. What they did outside the church, they may not have liked it very much, but it still, it went ahead. Uh, so the, the, perhaps there'd be various things. There might have been Morris dancers outside. There might have been lords and ladies celebrations and processions. There wasn't a lot they could do about that. They didn't particularly like it. And in many places, they tried to stop it. But they could really only impose fines upon people who were doing things within the grounds of the church. Yeah. You mentioned in your book that, um, in a sense, it almost made things more extreme because people would take it into the alehouse maybe it became much more of a, a festival as it were rather than anything to do with the church this may have been going on much before that any time that there was opportunity to celebrate what were pretty dull lives in those days mm. people would have taken the advantage and so for anyone uh, who was perhaps a bit of an entrepreneur that at any festival they will be out there selling food they'll be out there maybe entertaining people uh you, perhaps you've got the the, the the early showmen would probably be coming around to various villages when they were having their rush bearing uh and from then of course they would also take their um beer at the local alehouse although later on in many places it became the custom to actually brew your own beer uh, when people came to visit. I record of an instance where uh, one wife had brewed her beer and left it outside um, on a wall to, I think it said it was to cool. It must have, it wouldn't have been to cool. 
cows walking down the road came and <laughs> drank it. Oh. <laughs> Interesting is this information that you find in the newspapers, 19th century newspapers about the event. Yeah. Do you want to say something about King James? Because he turned it around a little bit, didn't he? Or tried to. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting characters, King James. On one side, he was very much against witchcraft. If you were not a Christian, then you weren't in his favour. Um, but on taking up his role as king, he issued some time later the King's Book of Sports in which he was saying basically what activities could could take place. Uh, he visited uh, Lancashire, um, Orton Hall in Lancashire, not many years after he started his reign. Uh, and he called in there on his way back from a visit to Scotland. And a brush bearing was held uh, as part of the entertainment for him. And uh, soon after that, the King's Book of Sports was issued and it said that uh, women were allowed to take rushes to church and decorate the church in the manner that they had done uh, previously, because he, he obviously saw it as not being any sort of threat to to, uh, to Christianity, and he was quite content for that to happen. So he may have made an exception for Lancashire a little bit earlier, but certainly following that visit, um, it was published in the King's Book of Sports. Uh, I think you say in your book it's 1617 or around that yes. time yes things permitted um archery and morris dancing and all the things that go with rush bearing that's right yes and uh, it wouldn't have done him any harm to do that because uh, it would have certainly gained favor with a lot of people who wanted to do these things and he was probably seen as oh, a good chap yes yeah i wanted to ask you about the rush carts you say in your book, um, of all the different features, they are the most enigmatic in terms of their relatively sudden appearance within a short period of time across much of the region and all with virtually the same form and method of construction. So that's really interesting, isn't it? It is. Um, bear in mind, not everywhere there was a rush bearing, they had rush guards. There's no evidence of rush carts in Cumbria. That is where some of the rush bearings are very much similar to what they would have always been. They don't seem to have changed very much uh, up in that area. Um, the rush carts tended to centre around South Lancashire and the areas around that. So it's a bit of the Pennine areas of West Riding and, and North Cheshire. Carts themselves were quite expensive objects. I mean. A coach would have only been available to the very wealthy. And particularly in Pennine areas, they didn't have carts. They had sledges that would be pulled by a horse or a cow or a bull. Um, as the roads improved, then carts would have probably been made more available. And perhaps more wealthy people would have loaned their carts for the rush cart to be made. As to how they got their new unique style um i suppose this is quite simply because i go back to the rush again the rush is six millimeters at one end nothing at the other end sharp point if you bundle them together with all the 
all in the same direction, you'll get a thick bundle, but at the other end, it'll be quite small. And if you start to stack them in a cart with the thin end to the middle, you automatically get a curved shape. It is difficult to understand how that occurred, but there are also descriptions of people who were very good at constructing rush carts being engaged by other people, other villages of the towns to come and build their rush cart for them or instruct them in doing it. So it probably just developed over a short period of time and one person found it a good way of doing it and it spread from there. But it did spread quite rapidly. Mm. And they were decorated as well, weren't they, with baubles and silverware and ribbons? Yes. and uh, People would, I presume it wouldn't be their own plate, but perhaps they would borrow plate from people who could afford to loan out their silver. Uh, they were also decorated with flowers. Often they put garlands on top of them and uh, garlands were taken to churches some carried by hand into churches and, and hung up, uh, and some were actually carried uh, on the rush guard. I know with the Sorby Bridge one, and I don't know whether this is the case with any of the others, but the, there's a person that sits on top, isn't there? Yes. Uh, is, is there a particular custom behind that? Often it was a case that um, they, they would perhaps have a, a fiddler sit on top and playing. It was just to add to the spectacle. Of the, of the event. If you have someone up on top who might be waving a flag or playing the fiddle, um, it, it added to the, the colour and the spectacle of the event. And, that, and that's the only reason. And was there a lot of competition between different places to who, who could make the biggest, best rush car? Well, yeah, of course there was. But really, we, we're talking only about the larger towns. Uh, in, in many towns, there was only ever one rush cart came to town. But in other, the larger ones, like Rochdale, for example, um, there might be seven or eight. Uh, and similar with Saddleworth, which, of course, at that time was in Yorkshire. Uh, they might even say they still are in Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there were several rush carts came to the town and they would compete. It was the neatest uh, and best decorated um, who had the best fiddle up on top, which of the people who pulled the cart were dressed the best, the smartest, and so on. Um, but it wasn't always men. Sometimes it would be a horse that would pull the cart, and the horse would be decorated to make it look really smart. Yeah. Morris dancers, they, they're associated, aren't they, with um, rush-bearing? How long has, has that been the case, and, and why did they become associated? Well, that's more problematic. The earliest reference I've got to rush bearing with Morris dances uh, is in the mid 1700s. Morris dancing was going on for a few centuries before this. Uh, one of the reasons there aren't the records of it is because perhaps no one was paying them to come along. And if the church was paying them, they would record that. But it's, it's at a, a church, I think it's a never olderly. Uh, where they're having their last rush bearing. Their church floor has been redone, new wooden flooring, 
And for what's going to be the last rush bearing, they engage some Morris dancers as part of the event. They may have always involved Morris dancers in the past, but this time they actually record that they are paying for them. And then after that, it's mostly in South Lancashire, what we're probably class of the Greater Manchester area now, where Morris dancers are associated with the rush bearing. But in 1904, when there was a rush cart to celebrate 50 years of local government in Sorby Bridge, they brought in Morris dancers then. Now, whether that's because much earlier there'd been Morris dancing, for which we have no records, or whether it was just a case of they knew that there were Morris dancers at the rush bearings in Lancashire, and so they wanted some dancers themselves, we'll never know, because that isn't, that isn't explained. Yeah. I mean... You could do a whole episode on Morris dancers themselves, couldn't you, really, the history of Morris dancing? But does Morris dancing have a religious background in the way that rush bearing does or not at all? Uh, sort of. Initially, Morris dancing is a court entertainment. Probably came to this country in the very early 15th century uh, there are records of it being danced at court for the king and various other events. It was obviously an interesting spectacle and attracted people. And so later on, you get the next lot of references tend to be where the church is sponsoring Morris dancing. The church is buying the bells and maybe even buying the uniforms uh, for people to dance Morris and probably a, a way of attracting people to the church ales, which were events which were put on where beer would be sold by the church and it would be a way of making income for the church uh, to pay for the curate or, or whatever, because they were largely self-financing with the churches at the time. Uh, so we're talking there in the 16th century, possibly going to the 17th century. And later on, people were just doing it because they wanted to do it. Did churches brew their own ales for this? I'm thinking of Buckfastly. Yeah, I, I, don't, I just don't know. <laughs> I think much more likely that they would have uh, perhaps uh, engaged a brewer to provide the beer. Um, because some of the records, they do say for things like ale, wine and cakes for the rush bearing, it suggests that the, the church was actually buying it in in order to resell mm. or to give it away. But but certainly, I think it's much more likely. The the abbeys uh, would probably have had their own breweries, but many people would just brew their beer at home uh, if they wanted. You say in your book that gingerbread was associated with brush mm. bearing as well. Why? Yeah. <laughs> well, there are other instances where special cakes were done. Christmas cake itself, uh, Christmas pudding, a spicy, by spicy I don't mean hot with chilies, I mean spicy with the other things like ginger would go into these cakes. And gingerbread perhaps at Easter time sometimes. 
But for some reason, gingerbread just seems to have been a popular thing. Many of the instances refer to Ormskirk gingerbread. Uh, Ormskirk, why I'm not quite sure that was a particular type of gingerbread. Uh, but certainly up in uh, Grasmere, um, they still do gingerbread all year round. And the records at Grasmere show that the church was buying gingerbread to give to those people who brought rushes to church. Before we, we get on to the decline of it, I just wanted to uh, mention uh, another thing that was associated with rush bearing, a bit unpleasant really, um, animal baiting. How did that come to be? Probably because there was an event in the town. Mm. There was something going on. The bear wards or the bull wards whose bulls were taken to a village, they, they would take an opportunity to say, we'll take our bulls around or take our bear around and people can come and watch. People would put their dogs against it and the ones that survived the longest or held onto the bull uh, the longest may have won a prize or they may have, been, they may have just have been gambling. Um, it's fair to say that the bull wards and the bear wards were there to make money. Uh, and it was an opportunity to make money. And of course, this wouldn't have gone in a tiny village, but in places like Rochdale, where there's a, a large number of people there that have been there. There was this record of the bulls being baited at uh, Almondbury, which isn't so far away. It, they may well have had baiting in Halifax prior to the Reformation. I don't know about that. It's a possibility. We can only really go on where there are actual records of it. We know they're bull baiting Ambleside um, because it's been recorded that the last bull was baited at the rush bearing. Right. Yeah. Eventually it's outlawed by the Cruelty to Animals Act in 1835. Yeah. Um, would you say it was it was starting to fall off before then? Uh, quite possibly. Civic pride was very important, and they did not like this association with uh, this sort of support. They didn't like, to be honest, many towns did not like rush bearing because it brought lots of people together. There were there was crime. There'd be pickpocketing. There were other, people took advantage of it, and. People with an interest in the town, a financial interest in the town, would do their best to stop these sort of incidents. But we've got to remember the first half of the 19th century was quite a turbulent time with chartists and so forth. If the opportunity was there, people would voice their political feelings at, at Rush Bearings and this type of event. That's also recorded. There was a lot of pressure not to let things get out of hand. Is there anything else that's associated with rush bearing custom-wise? Travelling fairs were quite popular um, at rush bearing uh, to such an extent that when virtually every element of rush bearing from the past had ceased, it was often the fairground, the travelling showman coming round was the last remnant. Brighouse being a particular example, 
in the mid-19th century, the Russian Fair was a large event. But gradually, these faded away. Uh, and often, when, uh, when it was the wakes weeks, when they would have the Russian Fair, uh, people were starting to move out of the town because transport was getting better and people went away on day excursions on the, the odd day that they had off from work. If you have to remember, uh, the Rush Barons, they were not compared with the local charity galas. They were not charity events. They were events for people um, to perhaps drink to excess, just generally enjoy themselves. Uh, and pressure was put on to, um, to close them down. And I think when, when the purpose of something ceases, when there's no real reason for it, you, you really are sort of clinging on to the event when, it's not, when it shouldn't be there. And really, none of the rush bearings should exist now because rushes are not needed in churches. The only element really of the rush bearings that happen today um, would be the pure spectacle and entertainment of the procession to church. You talk about it in your book as um, the folk revival of the 60s and 70s. So this is this is something that you've been involved in, isn't it? Yeah. The revival in the folk music in the 60s and 70s also uh, developed into a revival of, of Boris Johnson. And various uh, places started to revive these customs, uh, particularly in Lancashire, but also in Yorkshire as well. In the late 19th century, rush bearing in Lancashire, Yorkshire, Cheshire had more or less ceased. There were just a few people, places where it was hanging on a little bit. But around the early years of the 20th century, a lot of places were celebrating 50 years of local government. And there are a number of instances where uh, town starts to look back in the previous 50 years, what was going on there. Let's remember what's been happening in the past. And rush carts were a popular event. Uh, and then there was this second revival where from the folk revival of the 60s and 70s, a number of towns decided that we would revive their uh, rush carts again. Uh, we get Saddleworth, Whitworth, Gorton, Radcliffe, uh, Rochdale, Littleborough. They decided to revive their carts regularly. Uh, mm. And some of those have continued, some have since died out. At Sorby Bridge, um, because uh, in 1977 uh, it was the Queen's Jubilee, we decided uh, that we would have a one off event just to celebrate that again. Yeah didn't happen that way <laughs> no <laughs> so after the queen's silver jubilee one it's it it's happened pretty much every year is that right every year yeah um after the first uh, lockdown covid lockdown uh even though there was no formal procession a token bundle of brushes was presented at every church right. that we would normally yeah. visit and so it continued yeah. Are you very much involved with it every year when it happens? It... No longer, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's passed on to another generation. 
and 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 so it should. Um, once it got established, I was very happy to sit back mm-hmm. and let another generation take it on, and and that's what's happened. And it's it's going from strength to strength. Uh, and as long as there are people, are young people who are interested in doing it, so it will continue. Yeah. Um, just talk us through a little bit about the preparation for the Sorby Bridge rush bearing in, in particular. When do they start making the rush cart? Well, the rush cart uh, uh, is made over the two weeks prior to the event. Um, it's always two Tuesdays before, uh, before the event when the rushes are cut. Uh, and they're brought down to the canal basin at Sorby Bridge. And it's there where the, the cart is actually built. Do the rushes just come from the local moor tops? Yes, they usually come from the area beyond um, Wayne Stalls, near Fly Flats. And they are very profuse. And uh, they're, they're very long. And the longer they are, the, the more spectacular, more colour, if you like. Uh, uh, I don't mean in... They're all green and brown, but I think in terms of aesthetic colour, it gives yeah. a lot more to the time. The longer the rushes are, the better it appears. So the actual date, is it the same day every year or, or is it, does it vary? It's always the first Saturday and Sunday in September. Right. Originally, it would not have been then. It would have been probably in August because that's when Wakes Week was in Sorby Bridge. But in Silver Jubilee year, it wasn't possible to to do it at that time because we didn't have a cart. And once we got a cart, we could have a frame made for it. And so the first weekend of September was the earliest that it could possibly be done. And having done it once on that first weekend of September, it was decided that from now on, we'll have it as the first weekend in September. With the first one, you, you didn't have a cart at all. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yes. We didn't have a cart to build a rush cart in, so we had to go and look around for a cart. Eventually, one was found in Eptonstall, and uh, I went to, uh, to borrow it to see if I could hire it for the weekend. And the gentleman said, yes, of course you can. <laughs> but it might have been sold by then, so oh. I had no option <laughs> but to buy it. So I bought the cart. <laughs> Every year it's the same cart. No, it isn't that cart. Right. It did us quite well for a few years. Uh, it was an old Slavic cart. And what happened was the, the Colliery Museum Service uh, bought the cart from us and it stayed in the uh, Fenham Film Museum at Rippenden. It's now at Shibden Hall. And uh, we had a new cart constructed by uh, Outlay and Engineering Company. Um, it sounds odd to go to an engineering company for it, but the owner was actually a, a wheelwright and cartwright, oh, um, wow. yeah. uh, Frank Stott, and he built that for us. And it was the last cart that he, he constructed. Oh, when was that then? I think it was 1984, that, 84 or 85. It isn't the exact same construction as an authentic muck cart of the era. Uh, it was made for Sorbet Bridge Rush Bearing. And is that the one that you still use? That's the one we still use. And it should be good for another 100 years. It's a nice memory of him, isn't it? Um... Frank's still alive. 
I thought when you said it was the last one he made, I, I which is the last one he made. <laughs> just, just literally, no, not, not no. because anything happened to him. All right. No. Well, I'm pleased. <laughs> um, on the actual day of rush bearing, presumably you have to start pretty early. Are there particular stops that you do every single year? Yes, it's the same route every year. We start at uh, St John's Church, uh, which is technically in Warley, but we've started there for complicated reasons. We start to that, and then we visit all the other churches en route. Uh, the next one we stop at a St Patrick's Church in Sobey Bridge. Then we go to Christchurch, St Paul's Church, and then on the Sunday. The procession really starts after service at St. Peter's Church, Sorbet, Cottonstones uh, Church at Millbank, uh, and ending up at St. Bartholomew's Church in Rippenden. So it's about an eight-mile procession over two days. And is, it's pulled by humans, isn't it, this cart? Oh, yes. We don't have a horse <laughs> in Sorbet. <laughs> Most of the rush carts seem to have been pulled by my men, two long ropes leading from the cart with stangs across them, which the men hold and pull the cart along with, uh, and some stangs on the back to stop it from running away from them going downhill. And the young men, none of them are pokies. Uh, they are just local people uh, who put their names down on, on the list and sign up to pull the cart. Uh, over the two days, and some of them are actually still pulling the cart, and they were pulling the very first one. Wow. Mixture of ages. You can't pull the cart until you're 18, but after that, we've got from 18 up to people in their 70s pulling the cart. It's no mean task, is it, really, around here? <laughs> There's a lot of hills. It isn't the weight of the cart that make it difficult at all. It's uh, other things. They get rather tired on route. Um, and I, I'm not going to say it's just because of how much they drink, but it might play an element in it. And not there's anything wrong with that at all. It's, no. always been, it's been part of rush bearing probably in the very early times. If somebody wanted to become involved in, in the rush bearing festival, is there anyone they should contact or is there a place they can go and look like a Facebook page? Got a website, yes. Um, and the contacts for the organisation are on there. And uh, you don't necessarily get a chance to pull the first year, but as other people leave the area or uh, decide they've had enough, uh, then new people will come on. There are some people who put their children down <laughs> so that when they get to be 18 they're eligible to go on there yes so if people want to join they go to the website is it sober bridge rush bearing just sober bridge rush bearing if you google rush bearing it's easy to find and it's extremely popular isn't it i mean you get lots of people turning out to we do. to cheer you along um if people want to actually visit and spectate Where's the best place to start off? Every point has its own advantages. Um, small stops at the churches. The atmosphere is somewhat perhaps different to uh, the ones where we stop the cricket ground. But each place has its own, uh, you know, own special quality to it. And the best thing will be to come and start at the beginning and walk the whole procession and 
see it every bit of it then. It is, it's very pleasant to see the number of people that turn out, uh, particularly on Wall Street, uh, to watch the event. Uh, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, there are photographs from 1977, and you've got to really look out to find a person on the street, other than those pulling the rush cart. And now uh, there are lots and lots of people, and it's a very nice atmosphere. What, the weather as well, does that have any influence? Is it come rain or shine, it still goes ahead? Come rain or shine. If it's shining, it's very nice. If it's raining, you get wet. Mm. As simple as that. It's never stopped for the rain. Thank you um, so much for, for coming on History Out Loud, Gary. It's been really interesting, really fascinating. Yeah, I might make it down to Sorby Bridge this September yeah. to have a look. Well, I will be there. You'll be so, there. <laughs> but of course, if, if anyone wants to read any further, any closer, there's a, a copy of my book in I think every local library in Cobbledy. Yes, yes, well. it's a really good book. I recommend it. I'll just give the title again, Rush Bearing and Rush Strewing in Churches Across the Northern Counties. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you down there. Uh, and if I don't spot you straight away, come up to me. <laughs> I will. <laughs> You've been listening to History Out Loud, a podcast by Calderdale Libraries. Produced and presented by Jill Carpenter. Join us next time when we will be exploring the history of Lister Lane Cemetery with local historian David Glover. <laughs>